Hello, listeners. My name is Dr. Jody Madiri, and I'm a board-certified psychiatrist, a former TV producer, and your host of this podcast entitled The Telepsychiatrist. In each episode, you'll get a front-row seat to interviews with patients and experts to help you better understand the psychiatric experience. Whether you're a healthcare provider, patient, or simply curious, stick around for the challenges and victories in mental health. Now, here's this week's interview. Today, we'll be talking about, in my opinion, one of the most interesting phenomena in psychiatry, and that is catatonia. If you've ever seen catatonia before, you know exactly what I mean. It's fascinating. If you have no experience with catatonia, I'll try and give you a few movie references. Um, Do you remember the Indian in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Or the movie Awakenings with Robert De Niro? What about when Cameron goes mute in Ferris Bueller? All great movies if you haven't seen them. If you don't know any of those movies, you could think about a mannequin, how you can position a mannequin and they sort of get stuck in position and how they're mute or, you know, very little movement. So if all that's kind of throwing you off and you're still confused, let's review the criteria. Catatonia is defined by the presence of three or more of the following 12 symptoms. Stupor, which means no psychomotor activity and not actively relating to the environment. Catalepsy, which is passive induction of a posture held against gravity. Waxy flexibility, slight, even resistance to positioning by the examiner. Mutism, which is no or very little verbal response. Negativism, oppositional, no response to instructions or external stimuli. Posturing is the spontaneous and active maintenance of posture against gravity. Mannerism, odd circumstantial character of normal actions. Stereotypy, repetitive, abnormally frequent, non-goal-directed movements. Agitation, for no really good reason, not influenced by the external stimuli. Grimacing. Echolalia, which is the mimicking of other speech. And I'll say, first of all, that catatonia has a great variety of range. But in summary, the essential features of catatonia are reduced activity and decreased engagement with any particular motor activity or with your environment. Sometimes the clinical presentation of catatonia can be puzzling because the range of psychomotor disturbance goes from unresponsiveness to agitation. Catatonia also occurs and must occur in the context of another disorder. So usually it's a symptom of um, an underlying condition that's getting worse. It does not at this point exist as its independent disorder. Catatonia are reduced activity and decreased engagement with any particular motor activity or with your environment. Sometimes the clinical presentation of catatonia can be puzzling because the range of psychomotor disturbance goes from unresponsiveness to agitation. Catatonia also occurs and must occur in the context of another disorder. So usually it's a symptom of an underlying condition that's getting worse. It does not at this point exist as its independent disorder. So now I want to introduce you to a very kind patient of mine who suffered from major depression 
with catatonic features. And later we'll also speak with her husband. But for now, let's welcome Carrie. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Good. So Carrie, after hearing the criteria of catatonia, which ones did you kind of relate to? Definitely related to the ones that had waxy flexibility, I Mm. think. I I had some trouble with my motor skills and moving. Mm -hmm. And I know I I felt stiff, I guess. My body felt very stiff. Yeah. I related to that, definitely. Very interesting. And then for an observer, I noticed a little verbal response. And, you know, we had talked about like that flatness in the face, probably things that you didn't notice as much because you weren't really seeing yourself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So do you remember when you were really in the thick of that? Like, can you wrap your head around what that was like for you? I know that I didn't feel like responding. I I did not feel like talking. I was pretty much stuck inside my head and I didn't really have responses when I probably should have had responses. I was off somewhere else inside my head. Yeah. Where were you? I assume it was scary for you. Yes, it was. It was really, really scary, but I was faced off so much of the time and I don't know exactly where I was. Just, it felt empty. I felt very empty. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, to be having a conversation with you today compared to how you were doing, how long ago was it? Maybe two years? Two years in January. Two years in January. I mean, I wouldn't have been able to have a com. I wasn't able to have a conversation with you back then. So you've come a yeah. long way. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about your mental health history? I've had depression since I was a child and and panic disorder since I was a child too as like a later in my later teen years but I my major depressive disorder is has always been a struggle for me when I'm under a lot of stress I tend to have more panic attacks so what sort of life events were going on with you two years ago when we first started seeing one another? I was working a lot of 16-hour days in a nursing home that also took a lot of mental patients as well. And it was winter time, so I was obviously, I, I get the winter blues always, every winter. But my work was definitely a high-stress situation. And my mother had passed away, and I had two aunts pass away, like all within those same few months. Yeah, and if I remember correctly, you wound up quitting that job. And you, yeah, and you had such sort of a lack of interest with your environment at that job. Yes, I did. When I was looking back on my notes, I had written a couple of quotes down of things you had said early on, and I kind of wanted to see if you could relate to them and expand on them a little bit more. You had said, I feel frozen. I can't talk and it can last a couple of hours. I stare and lose track of time. I forget my words. My mind is very empty. I don't have a response. What's it like hearing that back? (laughs) Yeah. It's sad. Yeah. That makes me really sad. Sad why? Because I I do remember it. I do remember feeling very lost. And I know I couldn't find my words. 
I just couldn't find them. It was it was frustrating. It was so frustrating to not be able to put the words and the thoughts and actually get them out. It just the connections weren't made. Can imagine how frustrating that was. Do you feel that these symptoms coming and going or they mostly, you know, just have improved since that time? I think they've mostly just improved. I think I can express myself pretty well. And my husband doesn't let me stare off anymore. That scares him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm not allowed to space off anymore. And then a couple of notes that I had noted was that flat affect, latent speech, which is a term for, you know, takes a while to get started talking. There's a, a big kind of pause. Your motor slowing. And this idea of nihilistic thinking, which was that you had this belief that life was very like meaningless and was very dark. You were also having a lot of nightmares at that time. Do you remember any of those? I know that I was having a lot of them, but I can't remember what they were about. I know they were terrifying. I would wake up very scared, but I I don't know. Yeah, there was this really sense of just pure fear pure fear in your panic attacks and just your daily moments and fear of, was it a fear of going crazy, a fear fear of dying? Do you have any recollection of that? When I've gone back through my journals, I did have a a fear of dying. Mm. I did. I did. But I, I was in such a dark place, I probably thought that was next. Honestly, I think I was in such a dark place that I honestly feared dying you bring up journaling were you able to get your words out at that time like physically through writing better than verbally or better than verbally but it it's pretty choppy and and kind of jumbled I mean to go back and look at it now it's it's kind of scary but I I understand I was trying to say so when I first saw you do you remember how I was kind of explaining this thing, catatonia, and what it might be. And do you remember any of that? Kind of, because it made sense. I, you know, I knew a little bit about it. And I think it explained exactly kind of how I was feeling. I think I felt relief Hmm. when I heard you say that, because it meant that there was some sort of diagnosis for me. Right. But you had actually gone through an inpatient stay as well, where... You know, catatonia is really difficult to diagnose sometimes because the range of symptoms are so vast. Um, And so I think that when you were in your inpatient stay, it wasn't diagnosed yet. Is that right? No, it was not. Catatonia occurs in more than 10% of patients with acute psychiatric illness and others say up to 17%, which is is a lot. It's kind of difficult to diagnose catatonia. Catatonia needs to be treated first before attacking the underlying conditions. Because of the bizarre nature of catatonia, most believe it's associated with schizophrenia. But we have come to realize that it is more associated with mood disorders, so unipolar depression and bipolar. And also up to 25% have medical causes like an encephalitis. The prognosis is better when associated with mood disorders. When psychosis is the primary illness, it often leads to only partial response. Treatment is predominantly benzodiazepine medications. That's your Ativan, Xanax, Valium. But when medication fails, electroconvulsive therapy or ECT can be very successful. 
One study showed that there was 89% remission with ECT when medications had failed. And I know ECT sounds scary, but it is still a very powerful treatment option. But thankfully, Carrie did have a good response to medication. If it's okay with you, Carrie, I'd love to bring your husband into the conversation. Absolutely. Hello. Hi, Tom. (laughs) I haven't seen you in so long. How have you been? I've been good. I'm sure that everyone is wondering in this very bizarre catatonia, what was that like for you to see your wife go through this? She's always had depression. At first, I just kind of looked past because I didn't want to make her feel bad for acting different. That always made her nervous when you brought something up, you know? Mm. But it steadily got worse. We'd ask her a question and she would just... It got to where we, it was almost was so frustrating to have a conversation because you ask a question and wait 15 minutes. So you couldn't carry on a conversation with her. It was impossible. And then watching her do just normal tasks, just really struggling to do it. And I said, and we said, we, we got to do something. So and what did you guys do? We sat down and had a conversation with Carrie and made her aware of what we were seeing. She knew something was going on, so she didn't know what. Uh, and I think that was soon then when she decided to go ahead and go and do the inpatient because she didn't know how to get out of it. And I'm, I'm usually pretty good at keeping her positive, you know, and always finding the positive things. And there, at that point, it you couldn't do it. There was no positive. She couldn't see any of it. And we saw that. It got us scared of what was next, you know. So that's why we, we brought it to her attention and did something about it. And I was just like her when you said Catatonia and described it. There was relief because that was finally somebody understood that it was what she was going through. You know, I mean, that was the best way to describe my guess. Finally, they're okay. Now we know what to do, you know, or at least try. Yeah. Had and it been a while of you guys not knowing what was going on? I feared that something had happened, maybe in her head, you know, I didn't know if she had any stroke or something. There was some damage done. We didn't know, you know, if this was the new her or you could see the fear in her eyes. And that was the worst part. We could tell she was scared without her even, she didn't have to say it. It got to the point where we just couldn't stand seeing her miserable anymore. And we knew it wasn't going to get any better on its own. Same as you're saying, Tom, I remember in those early days when Carrie and, and you used to accompany her to the appointments in the, in the beginning, there was just overwhelming like f- sense of fear in the room. And it was like, heartbreaking to know that she was going through that. And that's why I was going with her originally or early is because I knew that she wasn't going to be able to say it because I tried to have a conversation with her just over what's for supper, you know, and that didn't work. So I knew as far as what was going on in her head, I knew there was no way she'd be able to explain to you what, what she was feeling or what we were seeing. You know, I just knew better. So that's why I went. That's how we met. So I have to say thank you so much for doing so. And for people who are listening, you know, psychiatry is a little bit of a different field than, you know, cardiology or surgery. We really rely on friends and family to give us their point of view. And Tom was extremely just crucial in helping me make the diagnosis and caring for Carrie, bringing her to her appointments. And of course, I loved, enjoyed seeing you, Tom. And now that he doesn't come to visits, it's a great thing, not because I don't get to see him, but because Carrie's doing better. (laughs) And she'll drive herself to appointments and she's able to express herself. When you hear Carrie talk about this sort of blankness and like lack of words and the staring and the frozenness how does that 
resonate with you? It's scary. I mean, it, it was so, I just feared that she wasn't going to come out of that, you know. Of course, we've been together for 30 some years, so I know her better than she does, but I, I was a helpless feeling. Because it, as you know, but any mental illness, it, you just, girl, you may start a medication, but you don't feel better the next day. It takes time, especially the catatonia, the state she was in was pretty bad from what the person she was to that person was night and day with different people, you know. I'm just concerned, you know, that it was going to be there permanent, and thankfully it wasn't. Thankfully it wasn't. How did it affect Carrie in her daily functioning with the kids, with the job? I don't know how she kept her job. I don't know how she still was able to work because she couldn't. I, I don't know how she pulled it off. It had to be such a struggle because it was something that would normally take five minutes, but it was taking 20 minutes, you know? Right. And I stayed there quite a bit with her at work because it was, she had a job that I could do that, and I would help, too, you know, with the things I could anyway. But I really honestly don't know how she did that. And I knew the job was a lot of it because it was just too much. They expected too much. They were running her into the ground, and that's why she left there because they, it was going to kill her, you know. There's just no doubt. If she would have still been there, I don't think she would ever came out of it. I really don't. So shortly after her inpatient stay, I did what's called an Ativan challenge test. And that means giving a patient a higher dose of Ativan, a benzodiazepine, and then observing the catatonia to see if it would break. And thankfully it did. Do you have recollection of that challenge test? It was such a relief. And I started to feel calmer and more focused. And I started to be able to speak and put my words together. The Adirondack Challenge was almost immediately noticed the difference. I mean, that was like, okay, that's it. And just immediately. Like that next day when that happened, it it was, she already knew it was better. Just, and then it was just working the kinks out. But I mean, that did it. That that was definitely the way to go. I don't know if that works like that for everybody, but it, it immediately worked for her. And usually that's something that's done inpatient. So I can't recall. How did we do that as an outpatient? Did I just call you or the next day? I, or? Better. I believe you had her calling you every... Yeah, I, I believe she did. She was calling you frequently. If I remember right, that's exactly what she was doing. She had to call you a certain time every day or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it worked. It, like I said, that was noticeable immediately. It was very exciting for the first time to actually make the connections and get the words out. It was, it was wonderful. Wow. And what that must have felt like for your family to see you kind of come back. But it wasn't, you know, it wasn't 100% after that test. And it took several months for you to truly feel back to your normal self. Considering how slow everything had been moving, it felt like it went quicker to me, even though it took time, it felt like it was going faster with me because everything was so slow, almost to a stop it felt like. I was so happy to start to move and speak and yeah, it was such such great relief mm-hmm. for my family too, I'm sure. In addition to the medication, what coping skills were you developing to help you with your depression? Was journaling at least twice a day. Every night I was journaling. I was also reading, which I hadn't done. I couldn't focus to do that. So I was doing that, and I was also speaking with my family on a regular basis. And I started in therapy 
going at least once every other week. Once we sort of broke the catatonia, it was really about addressing that underlying depression that was there. Mm-hmm. Were there any particular struggles you had during this period? I was terrified to drive. I'm not back to 100% driving yet, but my therapist and I talked about it, and it was it's kind of due to one accident I was in. So for some reason, I'm just kind of stuck in that spot yet and haven't completely gone past it. But he makes me drive. I still drive regularly to my appointments and stuff. I remember celebrating that when you come in, you'd be very happy. I drove here today. Yeah. It's a big deal when I do. It it really is. Looking back, would you have done anything differently? I was already addressed it earlier, I guess. That's the only thing I regret is not doing it sooner. And when you're just like anything, when you're living with somebody, you don't notice it as much as somebody that hadn't seen her for a while. And then they see her. So I wasn't as noticeable to me as it was to everybody else. You make a great point. When you live with someone, the changes are so subtle that you don't see the big change. You know, it doesn't happen overnight necessarily. I know that this was an extremely challenging and continues to be challenging because you do still suffer from the depression aspect of it. And is there at all any gifts that this experience has given either of you? I think my husband and I are a lot closer and a lot tuned in to each other more than what we were and my kids are a little more i don't know thankful and kids visit a lot now they got where they didn't want to come over it because it was they couldn't do it they couldn't handle it it was it was it got that severe to where they couldn't they're like i can't come with that i just can't do it i tried to carry on the conversation they're just watching her they couldn't handle it and they weren't coming around like it was too painful to say yeah yeah they couldn't do it so and now we're together more. Yeah, the kids are over a lot. She retired so, yeah. and takes care of the grandkids now. So, yeah. And you have a whole yeah. new life now. Yeah, exactly. What information would be helpful to know for anyone going through this, going through something similar, or for anyone's family who's going through something similar? Be patient. It gets better. It's easy to get frustrated in the situation. But if you don't judge the person with the behavior, it's a little bit easier to deal with. And it will get better. It does get better. All I know is if somebody's got suffers from mental illness and you're with them, be aware. Don't ignore the signs. I know it's easy to say, oh, she's going to be okay. Don't. Because it can get so bad so quick. There's something that I'd never dealt with before, the depression and anxiety myself. I'm always a positive one. So it was really hard for me to relate. But I know her well enough to know that Like I said, you just can't ignore those signs because it can get pretty dark pretty quick. So don't ignore the signs. I think that's the biggest takeaway for our family and friends of those who are suffering from mental health. How about for you, Carrie? I didn't know how sick I was until my family brought it to my attention. I kind of felt trapped in there. Hmm. I just didn't know how sick I really was until they brought it to my attention. But if there was ever advice I could give, it would be listen to your family, but also if, if you are sick, to reach out and get help. 
Thank you so much for your time. I'm glad you're doing better. I'm glad that you're together and supporting one another. Thank you for being, Tom, such an important part of Carrie's recovery. Thank you, Carrie, for speaking so openly about something so complex and difficult to kind of wrap your mind around. And I hope that you guys have a wonderful day. You've been listening to The Telepsychiatrist, a podcast designed to demystify and humanize the psychiatric experience. Head over to our website at thetelepsychiatrist.org to subscribe, join our newsletter, and give feedback where we guarantee a reply to each message received. Thank you for joining The Telepsychiatrist. This is Dr. Jody Medeiros signing off. See you next show.